severely messed Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job Hello, my name's Jim McKinley and welcome to episode 107 of Just Get A Real Job podcast. Thank you for tuning in as always. Apologies this week's episode's a day late. Our brilliant editor, Elliot Mitchell, is in the middle of moving flat this week. So he's been very busy, so appreciate him squeezing this podcast in amongst all the moving. I know how stressful moving is. We have a brilliant episode in store for you this week as we are joined by the very talented Gail Rastafer. I apologise if I say your surname wrong, Gail. I'm very bad at pronouncing surnames. I just went with what Google Translate said that your name is pronounced as. So if Google's wrong, I very much apologise. But Gail is an amazingly talented actor. She's also a writer as well. She has co-written an amazing new show, which is going to be debuting tomorrow at the Edinburgh Fringe. It's called Hello Kitty Must Die. It's on at the Pleasance Courtyard at 10 to 5 and most days of the Fringe. There's links to it under the podcast. Gail goes into much more detail about it. It's in all the sort of what to see at the Fringe guides and it's got a lot of buzz in the press. So I'm very excited to see it myself. So be sure to check that out. And also for any guests that stayed to the end of last week's episode with the amazing Mervyn Stutter, go and listen to it if you haven't heard it. It's a great episode. We are returning to the PBH Free Fringe again this year to do two special live shows. So we are going to be playing on the 15th and the 22nd in the Southsider Side Lounge at 8.15. And for the first show, we're going to be joined by two amazing stand-up comedians, Priya Hill, who's an amazing comedian, and returning to the podcast once again for the live show, who was on a few weeks ago, the brilliant Kate Hammer. So that's going to be an amazing episode, all about getting into comedy. I'm really excited for that one. And again, returning to the podcast for a second live show on the 22nd is the amazing Scottish band Dictator. I can't wait to speak to them again. They've been on an amazing journey since they were last on the podcast almost a year and a half ago. So really exciting for these two live shows. It's going to be great to be in front of an audience again. It's free. Come along. You don't have to pay, etc. Very excited for that. That is our big announcement. We'll be properly announcing that on social media this week, but you get to hear it here second because the OG fans that stayed to the end of last week's episode, they'd already heard this, but just wanted to say it once again. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Just Get A Real Job. It's a very, very enjoyable one, and we spoke about lots of amazing things, including the new show Hello Kitty Must Die. We spoke about the writer strikes and the actor strikes in America. It was great to get Gail's insights on that as an American creative. But anyway, that's enough waffle for me. I hope you enjoyed this week's brilliant episode of Just Get A Real Job. Well, Gail, lovely to meet you and thank you for coming on Just Get A Real Job this evening. It's great it's to see you. It's wonderful to speak with you, Jamie. Thank you. Well, it's a very exciting time because you're about to come to the Edinburgh Fringe with a show in a few weeks. We were just talking off air and be your first time in Scotland as well, which is very exciting. But yeah. how are you feeling ahead of that? We'll get into the show as we go on, but how, how are you feeling about that? I'm really excited. All I can say is my writing partner and I, Kurt Johns, we've co-adapted this project, Hello Kitty Must Die, from a cult novel by Angela Choi. And my only desire was to see the heroine in the book, 
come to life because I was so obsessed with the story and her journey. I wanted her to be real in many ways. Um, she was so radical, so angry. And, you know, it's a story of her becoming and saving herself from societal, cultural, religious, parental expectations. It, this is a dream come true. I, I just, mm. yeah, it's beyond all my imaginings. Yeah, that was very exciting. Well, we'll get into the show properly and you can plug it and talk about it in more depth as we go on. But just to start, do you want to introduce yourself to our audience and who you are and stuff? You're obviously an actor, you've been acting for a long time and obviously you've now been writing and adapting shows and stuff, but give us a bit of a snapshot about who Gail is, etc. You bet. I'm Gail Rastifer. I come from the Midwest in the United States, uh, Kansas City, Missouri. I was born and raised there. And I graduated with a degree in musical theater. But that I swiftly pivoted into straight theater and Shakespeare. And then I pivoted into film and TV and anything else that, you know, I could be hired for. I am one of those journeyman working actors that just get work where I find it. Mm -hmm. And as I have gotten older, I have kind of pivoted again into just doing projects that really interest me, spur my imagination and things I want to share with people that have a message. Yeah, well, that's sort of all chimes of what Just Get A Real Job podcast is kind of all about. Is we speak to people that are working in this industry across it in different ways and in ways that are maybe less talked about because it's, you know, a lot of people make a living without necessarily being like massively famous, but they're still successful in their own right. And that's what this podcast sort of shines light on what it's all about. So it's great to have you with us. But just to start at the very beginning, do you remember what your earliest creative memory is? I really do. I can tell you with absolute 100% certainty <laughs> that the only thing I ever wanted to be was a performer. Music is the first thing that dropped into my life and was huge, literally as a toddler. When I was three or four in the States, we had something called the close and play record. And it was basically a foolproof, idiot proof record player for toddlers that when you closed it, it played little 45 records. And then when you opened it, it stopped. So it was absolutely any little kid just coming out of nappies, you know, who <laughs> work the record. And I had all these storytelling records. I had Old King Cole, and they were fairy tale records. And Tina the Ballerina was one of my favorites. And they were storytelling records with music. And I would act them out, religiously act them out every day in my living room. We had a big picture window, and that was the audience. Like, I mean, the neighbors must have thought I was a loon, but <laughs> that's what I would do. And that's like one of my earliest creative memories uh, every single day. Other than that, it was literally coloring and painting. So those were my two obsessive things as a young child. And do you still think of them now when you're like doing what you love? Do they still come to mind? Or? 100%. It's on my website. It literally <laughs> is the first thing I talk about on my website. Like this is it for me. I had no other real desires in life. And when I was young, I didn't have a name for it, right? I was just mm. singing. And then I saw Wizard of Oz probably when I was four. And that was a tradition every year is to watch Judy Garland and Wizard of Oz. And all I knew was I want to be that person. Whatever that person is doing, I want to be that. And then, of course, when I got into high school and I was singing more, you know, we were talking about going to school as an opera singer. And I was like, that's not really what. But I heard of something called musical theater. And I was like, OK, yeah, that's what I want to do. Yeah. So it, it's always been there. It's always been a thing. It hasn't gone away. It's just pivoted to a different area of performing. That's really interesting. And like, just to sort of expand on that, this question always normally ties in, but how's where you're from influence you as a creative as well? You know, that's an interesting question. And I don't know 
if where I'm from influenced me very much. The Midwest is, I mean, there are a lot of stereotypes about the Midwest, which are true. You know, it's family oriented. It's very patriarchal in nature. It is suburban, you know, so you're not talking about a lot of theater. You're talking about a lot of movie theaters and sports are really, you know, emphasized cultural, you know, theater and dance Mm. and music wasn't extremely emphasized when I grew up. However, who I came from influenced me. And that is, I had two parents that were like, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. They never said to me, which a lot of parents do, that is unacceptable. You're never going to make money. This hobby you have, there's no way it can be a career. You need security. You, you know, all those things. They let me do what I wanted to do. And, you know, they made sure to find my mother, especially mother, especially find classes that cultivated the the visual artist in me, the painting, the drawing, the sketching and dance. And I took piano lessons for 12 years. I started Mm. vocal training once my voice matured a little bit. So I was a young teen when I started vocal lessons and I didn't start acting lessons until college, but I was involved heavily in, in, in my high school days as, you know, in theater and stuff like that. That's amazing. It's amazing to have that sort of support and encouragement for sure. Listen, I understand how lucky I was to grow up in the family I had, because I know for a lot of young people still, they come from families that are, you know, want to box them in. And that's really unfortunate. I think it's also like a cultural thing as well, that like, it's a shame that that's not nurtured and encouraged from like an educational level. And I mean, I don't know what it's like in America as much as the UK, but I know, unfortunately, especially the last sort of 10, 15 years with like the cost of living and things like that, that like, the arts just aren't prioritized in school and in education as much as they should be. No, and, and arts are important because I think they open up a part of a person's heart and brain to a bigger possibility of a better humanity as far as I'm concerned. You know, mm. it, it taps into the best parts of us. No, yeah. 100%. And as, as last week's guest, Mervyn Stutter, who's like a bit of a fringe legend, actually pointed out that he was talking about how like if you're good at speaking publicly and have the confidence of from studying something like an art subject, then it's actually good for the economy because it makes people better at their normal jobs are quote real jobs you know what I mean like it's good to have a creative side to you even if you're a scientist so and and you know we know most people in the performing arts it doesn't matter if you're an actor you're a writer right now also you know uh, the writers in America are on strike right now we're not rich people a lot of the times and for the duration of our lifetime have to have secondary jobs of some kind you know Mm. So it's not that we're turning our back on, listen, we just have to make a buck, right? We're all making, because that's what you need to do to live in this society. But, you know, having that emphasis and the importance on the artistic side is just as important and essential. hundred percent. We'll come back to the strike stuff because I'm really interested to ask you about this, especially being in the States. But do you have like a, a favorite word or phrase from growing up in the Midwest that is really stuck with you? Not really, but... <laughs> I can say a couple of things uh, that that really speak to my passive aggressive side because I am so good at passive aggressive behavior. And, and it's the stuff that annoys me and kind of delights me at the same time. And, and that is, you know, bless your heart. 
<laughs> which is more of a Southern thing. But I, like I said, I'm from Missouri and that is really kind of right there, you know? So the bless your heart and, oh, I love that for you. That's good for you is, is a really lovely thing. But I, I come from Missouri. Their state slogan is the show me state. <laughs> and that means, you know, show me, show me your point of view, show me. So I do like that. That's a nice little challenge for people. Mm, you know, it's yeah. not just because I said so, but show me, show me what you're saying. Show me, you know, prove it. It's a good challenge. Yeah, I like that. I like that. What What is Missouri sort of culturally known for? I, I don't know a lot about Missouri as a Scottish person, being honest, but like, is there like anything set there? Is there any, like, what was the artist scene in Missouri like? In the suburbs, not when I was growing up, not awesome. You know, all the things were relegated to downtown, right? The city center. Mm. At the time, we didn't have a ton of theater. There was the symphony and we had a dance company and all that kind of stuff. But like I said, it's it's a very suburban mindset and it's really familial. It's a very, you know, there are come from a tradition of traditional families and traditional values. And I think a lot has to do with a lot of Christian ideology as well. So Missouri is struggling right now. You know, we have a lot of, and I hate the word liberal necessarily, but we have a lot of forward thinking people in our cities. And then in the center of the state where it's rural and stuff, you have a lot of people who really lean into patriarchal, mm -hmm. misogynistic values. So the women are struggling there, especially with body autonomy. Yeah. As well as the LGBTQIA community as well. We got a lot of work to do, you know, yeah. and it's hard to reach those people in the center of that area, that, that state in the Southern portion of the state as well, to just be like, let people live their lives. <laughs> mm. And that must be quite different to where you are now in New York, especially the culturally and like the sort of scene you must be part of there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it's lovely to be immersed in diverse ideas, diverse concepts and diverse people. It's great. I love it. I love it. Mm. But before we get to how you even ended up in New York, like yeah. we should go back a bit. Like when you first left school, you said you wanted to get into acting and music uh -huh. career and stuff. What were your sort of first steps into your acting career? Just desire. I knew nothing. And I mean, you know, other than the training I had had as a young person in voice and dance, which, you know, that kind of fell away. I wasn't great at dance. I tried, I tried, I tried. And then acting came later in high school, you know, with the, we do musicals and we do plays, but I really wanted to do this. I had a choice between going to an art institute, right? Doing visual arts and then doing this. And I was like, I want to, I want to act. So you have to audition to get into the programs I wanted to do. You had to audition to get in. And so my parents gave me a handful of choices and I auditioned, knowing nothing, but saying mm -hmm. yes to everything, just the experiences and learning not to be afraid. I think as an actor and as a performing artist, you have to push past fear a lot of the times, you know, insecurities, et cetera. So I came up with a monologue. I didn't even know what a monologue is. You know, it's paragraphed mm. of text when you're as an actor, you're fighting for something. So I found one that spoke to me. I sang a song and I got into a couple of programs. I choose the one I wanted to go to. And then I absorbed, I drank the Kool-Aid, man. I, <laughs> I just was like, yes, give it to me. I will learn everything. And I went from there. It was an incredible four years of my life because mm. I had, I felt like I had suffered through academic achievement. I was a perfectionist and I was so bad at science. I was so bad at maths. Mm. 
the literature was great. Social studies, you know, and civics, great. But all the rest of the stuff I was just, and I knew I had to make the grades in order to get into programs that I wanted to get into. So to be able to get all that stuff out of the way and just do what I wanted to do that I've wanted to do since I was three, you know, it was a magical experience. It was just great. So I, that's how I prepped. I just had the desire, did the things that I was told to do. And I honestly, I don't know that my talent got me into any program. I think it was my ability to be like, I got the desire and I can learn. Mm. You can teach me and I will learn it. I, I think there's no right answer on this, but from speaking to so many creative people and from my own experience in my own career and stuff and TV, I always find that like talent is is important. You need to have a bit of talent. But I actually think that it is that persistence and desire and sort of almost insane just doing it, you know, doing everything you can and enthusiasm that almost gets you the, the luck and the opportunity more than the talent itself almost. So I kind of hear what you're saying there. A friend of mine told me this a, quite a long time ago. She's a, a very good friend and a mentor of mine. And she said, the journey has to be enough. Mm, no 100% because the 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 goal or what your dream is you know the movie star or the broadway actor or uh, you know whatever that is most of us will never see that yeah most of us will never see it so there has to be some fulfillment and joy and contentment with the journey itself and if you're not rethink yeah no this this has come up loads on this podcast and people before as well like this idea of like you have to enjoy the journey and the sort of doing the day-to-day work of it because even even if you did make it as like for example in your instance a big actor or a big tv producer or whatever it was you wanted to do often you might not actually when you get that moment it will still not be enough and you want more and you want more so you have to sort of learn to enjoy the journey of it or you never really be fulfilled I think it's like that any sort of ambition in life do you know what I mean it's like even you hear olympic athletes say like Oh, I won a gold medal, but I actually, it made me feel quite empty. I didn't really feel anything. And right, it's because what do you do after that, right? Yeah. And it's the probably, goal is meant. Yeah. And it's probably the training and the doing it every day is probably more enjoyable for them in a way than the actual winning it as well. I'm sure winning it is also a lovely feeling for them. I'm not saying that, but do you know what I mean? It's, I get what they're kind of coming from in that way. But anyway, that sounds like an amazing sort of experience you got to have studying like and living your dream. But what after that, what were your sort of next steps in your career? Like, did you do you remember getting your first sort of break, as the people call it sometimes? Yes. So I was thinking about moving to New York. But at that time, New York was an extremely different place. Times Square was not what it is now. And I just remember going there for showcase. You know, when when you're done mm. with your program, they they send you off to New York City, and then you have this showcase, which is basically a big glorified audition for agents and managers and casting directors. Mm. I just remember living in that space for like a week, and I would just walk out of the place I was staying, and my shoulders would come up to my ears, and I'm like, I don't know. And I would be harassed. I would be catcalled. I would be, and I was just like, as a, as a 22 year old young person, I was like, I don't know that I can live like this every day. And my first job out of school that summer was in the mountains of Montana, which is as far away as you can get to New York. I had never been to a place like this where, that had a summer theater and it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. And I was like, God must live here. God lives here. This is, and 
I was just surround. And so I was really conflicted, like this beauty in this space where I can create mm. art versus this city that was gritty and noisy and just a cauldron of stuff. And I was like something, neither of these are correct. So what is correct? Mm. So I moved to Chicago where a group of my classmates, my mates went and they said, you can audition every day here. At the time, Chicago was this amazing cauldron of arts. There were theaters everywhere, little storefronts that only sat like 25 seats for the audience. Mm -hmm. And these young theater makers were making incredible theater, incredible incredible theater. And there were big theaters too. And they were like, you can audition every day. And I did. And it was incredible. And my first job wasn't like a non-union, what we call non-union work. Uh, it was a union job. I was a non-union young person working a union job. And it was incredible. And from that first job, I have lasting relationships, lasting artistic and personal relationships with people. And it just went from there. Mm. Chicago, I could be wrong again. I'm sorry. I don't oh, know okay. about, but Chicago is where like Saturday Night Live and stuff all started, wasn't it? That's well, it's where Second City, it, ah, it had okay. one of the major hubs for Second City. Mm. So Second City is from there, uh, what they call, what the, used to be the Improv Olympic, which I can't, it's the IO. They have a huge and rich history of improvisation. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of those people that are were and have been on and are now on Saturday Night Live have come from that Chicago mm. program. Yeah. It's got an amazing scene. Does it still have an amazing scene now, Chicago? Is it still quite... Oh, yeah. It's changed. It's changed. You can't... I mean, unlike when I went there, actors can't audition every day. It doesn't work mm -hmm. like that anymore, unfortunately. It's kind of become more closed versus it was just a free-for-all of, I'm going to this audition, I'm going to this audition. Theaters have become a little bit more discerning. So I, yeah. I kind of feel bad for actors right now everywhere because I got to audition every day. Do you know how with practice, how sharp you can get? Mm. And if actors aren't allowed to practice auditioning, you know, I feel like their growth as a performer and as a person securing a job gets a little stunted is too strong of a word, but you know, practice makes perfect. Yeah. Did, do you think it was easier back then than it is now for someone who just is come out of, for example, say they come out of college or university and they want to be an actor? Or they just want to be an actor in general. Do you think it's harder for them now than it was? When I think you in some. Out? I think in some ways it's harder. Again, because I think there's just like this closed, insular kind of thing, and and hurdles that actors have to to maneuver mm. over in order to get a audition in general. However, I think it is so much better. Not only has have the projects become wide open, but you know. Even seven years ago, five years ago, trans people, you know, trans actors, where was their place? You know, directors mm. and producers weren't looking at trans actors as, you know, viable commodities or, you mm. know, where do we put that person? Well, you put them anywhere. You know, we are now LGBTQIA people, you know, and the stories that are being told now are so much more expansive, yeah. so much more expansive and inclusive. And that's important. It's important. It's very exciting in many ways. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like the industry is more diverse now, which is great. But then it's, it's almost become harder to get into as well because of economic factors. So it's like in a lot of ways we made progress, but then in some ways 
again, this will come into when we talk about the strikes, I imagine, as well. But there's also a lot of backward steps that have happened as well. So it's a sort True. of a we- it is a very weird time. Yes. Um, yeah. But I suppose it's always been that there's always steps forward and then other steps back. And 100 percent, 100 percent. And, you know, a lot has to do with expanding the general publics, you know, who are essentially our patrons reaching out to society to say, come see these things. Don't just go to the big movie theater or sit in your little studio or your flat or whatever and watch a streaming service. Go out and see the live experience because emotionally you will have a different experience. It is it is tactile. You feel mm-hmm. it in your body more. You, It's a whole body, whole spirit, whole emotional experience. I am so into the idea that when people come to a live performance, you can love it. You can be passionate in either direction. You can love it, love it, or hate it, hate it. And rah, 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 rah. Mm-hmm. I just don't want them to be bored. Yeah. I don't want them to be bored. (laughs) So have your reaction, but I want it to be a reaction. (laughs) Sometimes it's actually the weirdest feeling. I mean, I I read a lot of scripts for work and stuff like that, but sometimes it's the hardest sort of reaction where you read a script or you go to see a play or whatever, and you actually kind of just feel nothing for it. Like you you just think it was fine. Like it wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't bad. It was just fine. Like that's the hardest yeah. It's the hardest place to sort of put an opinion on someone when it's that when that's the case. Yeah. And when when you can't even say it was entertaining. Yeah. And it's usually because it's derivative. It's something people have seen before. And, you know, I am not personally interested in seeing another, you know, for example, jukebox musical. Hmm. I'm looking for original ideas, something that takes me out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good time to talk about your new show then, because, you know, they're speaking about original ideas, about exciting theatre. Well, Jamie, what do you want to know? (laughs) Everything. I mean, like, tell us firstly what the show is, and then we can maybe talk about the origin of it and how it's about to go on at the Edinburgh Fringe, which is incredibly exciting. Great. So the show is called Hello Kitty Must Die. It is based on a cult novel by the same name by Angela Choi. I read it over, uh, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, and it was, I was obsessed with it. It is about a young Chinese-American lawyer who is kind of steeped in her familial, ancient, cultural Mm. expectations and obligations, as well as the awful stereotyping that happens by white privileged society, American society in particular, and how she ends up breaking that cycle of living in that and accepting it for herself. She knows something isn't right with it for her. Mm. And it takes a catalyst of her former best friend, childhood best friend to break her out of it through serial killing. What? (laughs) It's an allegory. So I don't want anyone to get upset. It's an allegory, but it is it is radical. It's dark and it's really darkly funny. You know, I'd be laughing at parts in the book like this. I shouldn't be laughing at this, but it's really, really funny and irreverent. So I look at it as a privileged white person. Right. And Mm. that helped me kind of change my viewpoint on many things that helps me do better daily. I mean, this, this show still resonates with me and Mm. I'm always doing the work, but it also resonated with me as a woman in society, because I think all women can relate to, you know, whether they come from a particular familial, cultural, religious background, 
certain religious backgrounds where they say, you're going to get married and then you're going to have children or, you know, you should be this way and you should be polite and you should be quiet and you shouldn't be so loud and obnoxious and, you know, proper women don't do these things. They do these things. I mean, it's still true today to some extent, not as a whole, but there's still Mm. women dealing with those things. And quite honestly, there are other human beings dealing with that as well. And they don't want to live that way. And so it's about breaking those bonds. How do I get out of this? How do I live my life like me authentically? Mm. No, it's all centrally rich and really interesting, really important, et cetera. How how has the sort of show got from where it was to sort of get it ready to take to Edinburgh Fringe? Like you were saying, off air it sort of started as a one-woman show and what's the journey and the process that have been like? So when I read this, I had held on to this book for quite a while. In 2016, I did a one-woman show with Kurt Johns, who was a part, he kind of ran a theater company in Chicago called Solo Chicago. I did a one-woman show for them, not written by me, this was just a show that, you know, I did mm. for them. And before every rehearsal, we would talk about, I just want to do stuff no one's ever seen before. And what is your dream? You know, we shared our dreams with each other. And I said, I've got a book and it's really radical and mm. it's going to push buttons. And I told him about it. I said, it's Hello Kitty Must Die. He went home and read it in 24 hours. And he came back and he's like, we're doing this show. <laughs> and I said, not without me or not. And he's like, do you know how to write? And I said, no. And I was like, do you? And he's like, no. And I'm like, perfect. We're meant for each other. Let's do this. So we just started writing and we wrote it as a one woman show because of solo Chicago. Mm -hmm. We thought what a great role for a Chinese American or Asian American woman to do. It's a tour de force. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen any Asian American women stand alone on stage and do something this strong and powerful. And I wanted to see it. We also wanted to make it accessible to different theater companies, small storefronts and big, you know, what we call regional theaters Mm. around the country because it's financially feasible, right? A one person show doesn't require a lot. You could literally have a table and a chair and tell the story. Kurt shopped it around for years because I knew no one. I was a nobody. I was just an actor. I went out to LA to try to make money where there was a lot more work as an actor to try to raise funds myself so we could self-produce. And finally, Kevin McCollum of Alchemation read the play and we started discussing about a year and a half ago. He's like, I think this could be a musical and I think it could be a multi-person musical. And A year ago, we started working on that and we presented it to him and his team. And then they introduced us to the wonderful composer, Cecilia Lynn. She's an award-winning composer. And then we got hooked up with Jessica Wu, who is a lyricist. And literally in a matter of months, we have formed this presentation. Now, I want to emphasize, this is Edinburgh, right? We got an hour to perform. (laughs) So this isn't, this isn't necessarily the finished product. This is us fast and furious coming up with this idea that can be encompassed in an hour. But our mentors here at Alchemation were really like, we want to try to tell the whole story. So Mm. that's what this is. It, 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 It is so much more, but that's what this is right now. And what I'm seeing in the room, by the way, we have some amazing women doing this show and they're going to knock people's socks off. They're badasses. They are amazing. Yeah. So this is a sort of almost the sort of debut of this show as you know it is going to be Edinburgh. 100%. We yeah. have done several readings of the one person show, two here in New York, two in Chicago, and then one in LA. 
just to get feedback. And like I said, then uh, Kevin got a hold of it and was like, I think this could be a musical. <laughs> we were like, okay, let's see where that takes us. Yeah. And I suppose like Edinburgh was originally sort of designed for this. This is what Edinburgh Fringe is all about is people taking shows and trying things out and performing them. I mean, we, this was all sort of in last week's podcast episode. We had someone on that's been performing Edinburgh for nearly 35 years and he does Pick of the Fringe, which is an amazing show. But he was talking about how like we we kind of had this amazing conversation about Edinburgh sort of changed a little bit now. But there still is the opportunity to do a lot of that, you know, trying out new things and what has changed. What what did Edinburgh used to be versus what it is now? I've, this is really hard because I feel like I'm not the expert at it. But basically, the sort of summary of it is that like the Edinburgh Fringe has become a bit more corporate in the last sort of twenty years because it's been sort of over, almost outgrown itself because it's so big. So it's really hard if you don't have a lot of money and you're an up-and-coming performer or sort of theatre company to sort of get that sort of hold there because accommodation's extortion. I'm sure you know this already from travelling through. Do you know what I mean? It's become such an expensive thing to do. So if you don't come from money or you don't have the funds, it's a lot harder for you to maybe break through at Edinburgh than it maybe used to be. That's the main sort of headlines, really. It's still an amazing festival. No, no, I absolutely hear that. And, you know, that's that's an issue all over, right? Like Mm. here in the States, Sundance Film Festival used to be this radical little thing. And now it's, you're right, it's become very corporate and major players are there. And you're just like, we can't forget about the performers, the young upstarts, and just the people who have the desire and the creativity, you know, that don't have the money. That's what these festivals were really created for. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's called The Fringe as well, like the sort of whole clues in the name, but like, and and to be clear, like I think The Fringe Festival and the people that organize the various festivals, I think they all come, you know, a lot of their hearts are all in the right place. It's just, I think, as you say, it's a financial thing all over. The whole industry is very financially imbalanced. That is a massive problem. But it's really exciting that you're, you know, be able to try out the show as the musical there and and to have like a sort of bigger cast now. So I know you in the show as well yourself, but you actually. God, no, 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 no. Listen, I, I, you know, it's so funny because as an actress, they're like, oh, did you create that project for yourself as it's an ego, (laughs) you know, project for me to work? And I'm like, no, you know, I I don't get inspiration necessarily for myself. I get inspiration Mm. because it's something I want to see. So this is all Asian American women doing this show. They're going to be playing all sorts of people. And that was, that was very important to me. It was a very important to my writing partner, Kurt, that there were no, and no offense to men, but since this is a very female driven story Mm. that I was like, I don't want any white people on that stage. And I don't want any men on that stage. And it's great. <laughs> I love it. I'm in love with it. I'm in love with my actors and I am still in love with the story, the essence of the story. You know, even though we've had to condense it, mm. which was not easy, we've had to condense it and add music to it. And our composer and our lyricist were really good about, you know, I don't want standalone songs. I don't want a soundtrack based on the story. I want you to, I, we need to tell the story with the music. So we would take sections or scenes or something and say, musicalize this, Mm. musicalize this scene. And they did to great effect, to great effect. And not only that, they're going to be earworms for people. They're going to (laughs) be, there's going to be songs in there for sure. People are going to be humming when they leave the theater. Yeah. Yeah. It must feel quite nice and full circle for you, though, because although I know you sort of mentioned that you sort of went on to do quite a lot of straight theatre in your acting career, but obviously you got into the arts, a lot of it was free musical theatre. So it must be quite nice that you kind of got to write and be part of putting on like a musical. Yeah. And I never thought I'd go back 
to that in any way. But because we are doing it in this way, I'm all for it. I mean, there was a world where I was like, I think this whole thing could be musicalized. I think it could be a rock opera <laughs> um, because it is so heightened. The stakes are so high. The thoughts are so radical that it could just live in that big, lush yeah. space of rock opera. I, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I've started to dream a little bigger. Exciting. Yeah. Uh, and, and and after the, I mean, obviously, I imagine you have to sort of see how it all goes, but I take it there's plans to take this on after the fringe and maybe tour it around the states and things like that anything can happen i don't know i try to live in the moment and just say this is a gift given to me (laughs) and my main concern is making sure the story the spirit of the story and the story itself stays intact yeah and the message the the subversive message of it stays intact that's all i care about and that all ties back into what we mentioned earlier about enjoying the journey in a way and being, you know, just enjoying it for what it is and seeing what happens. It, exactly. It's great to have goals and dreams, but enjoy the journey, be in the moment. And the journey might take you somewhere else, but it might take you somewhere else that is better than you ever possibly imagined. Yeah, 100%. It was really, really exciting. Do you want to tell people where they can see it and what times it's on, etc.? Oh my gosh. Okay. So it's at the, the Pleasance. Is that right? Pleasance. Yeah. The Pleasance. Yeah, Pleasance. Okay. Yes. So we're doing it there in their 158 seat theater. So we've got a great space. Yeah. Very good. Um, and it'll be at 4.50 in the afternoon. We play Wednesdays through Mondays. So we have one dark night or one dark mm. day on Tuesdays, but it's going to play the entire fest Wednesdays through Mondays. Yeah. And you'll love Tuesdays. You'll get a chance to just go and see stuff and relax. That'd be good. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. You know, we're stressed right now, no doubt about it. We're kind of Of like, you know, working fast and furious. And uh, when I do this, even as an actor, I kind of have a one track mind when I'm working on a piece as an actor, I can't like read, I can't, I'm a voracious reader, but I can't like read novels or anything like that. I can't read other plays. It's like, this is my whole focus right now. So Mm. I'm hoping once we start the run that I can be like, okay, I'm going to breathe and I'm going to go get inspired by some. Yeah. Yeah. other performers yeah. well hopefully that you'll be you'll be in the mindset to do it obviously because it's an amazing you know that's what the fringe is all all about and it's such an amazing but you, you'll literally have so many ideas of what you want to go and see and you'll never have time to see it all even in a month it's just impossible so much it's actually overwhelming it's like there's too much choice in a way it's, it's amazing I mean, I don't know how people keep money in their pockets when there's just so much. Oh, you don't. You, you don't. I mean, the prices for everything go up as well. Like, do you know what I mean? Like a, a drink becomes like double the normal cost. Of course it does. Listen, <laughs> listen, if I were a merchant in Edinburgh, listen, I'd be, I, I, I couldn't blame them. I can't blame them for rubbing that. Rubbing your hands together. No, that, that's amazing that your you know, show is going to be on and hopefully people will go and see it. There's a link to it underneath the podcast. This will go out just, you know, a few weeks before the Fringe probably as well. So it's getting very close now and when people are listening to this hello it's jb here you may have heard this advert several times before but if not this is basically just me taking a minute to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast there are a number of things you can do to help us keep growing now as many of you might be aware the podcasting landscape is incredibly saturated and i mean there's lots of podcasts we all love podcasts but it's very difficult for independent podcasts like us to sometimes break through and to be noticed so doing things like sharing us on social media word of mouth and just telling friends and family to listen or even leaving us a little five-star review on places like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts 
go so far in helping us to keep growing. Me and Elliot adore this podcast. We love making this podcast. So if you're able to help in any way by doing something like that, we'd be incredibly grateful. Not just for our podcast, but if you love any independent podcast, please try and give them a wee share or give them a review because it, it goes so far. Another thing you can do if you enjoy the podcast as well, and we appreciate that this is a very difficult time, but if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us, you can donate as little or as much as you like to our Patreon page, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash job, or you can click the link in the show notes. Anything you can afford, we are very grateful for. Thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. But we sort of touched on the strikes earlier. I know you're a union member in America and you'd been in quite a few films and shows and theatres, shows, etc. But tell us what's sort of going on about the, with the strikes at the moment. I mean, people over here will know about the writers' strikes, the actors' strikes. We have quite a few American listeners as well who probably are aware of it. But from your perspective, what, why are the actors striking? What's going on? So I'm a member of SAG-AFTRA. I've been for a long, long while. I was actually on my local board of directors for my area, Chicago. Uh, for maybe a decade plus. Our contract came up. And in fact, three contracts with the AMTPA came up, which is kind of the Producers Guild. Over the last decade, 15, 20 years or so, we know that all of these producers and filmmakers have been merging. So they've become conglomerates. So very few organizations or corporations Mm -hmm. do the majority of film and TV production. And that includes streaming too. Yeah. So very few people control all that power. The Directors Guild, the the Writers Guild, and the SAG-AFTRA Guild, which is the actors, it encompasses actors and singers and background actors and all that. All of their contracts came up within this three-month period in the summer. The directors settled an agreement with the producers, but the WGA and the actors have not. AI, artificial intelligence, is a big, big issue with us. The producers want to be able to pay actors and our background actors, especially a flat fee to scan their image and use it over and over again. So they would be paid one time. Yeah. Could be, I mean, it could be $500. It could be $3,000, but one time and in perpetuity, Mm. their image could be used in movies and TV forever. And all we have is ourselves. Yeah. We are we are the commodity. So if we're giving that away, it's not good. It's, it's not good. Scary. It's very, very scary. scary. Yeah. And to think that, and we've already seen AI, just artificial human beings in TV and movie, like they could just, an AI in writer's rooms, we have chat, chat GPT and all of that stuff that is writing things for people influencers and stuff they don't people don't even have to be creative anymore they can just feed it into a computer we are in a new frontier Mm. and if the worker doesn't take a stand you know it's all going to go away everything's going to go away creativity creative thought is going to be left up to robots and no one wants i don't think anyone wants that to happen who the average person because truly i think we're the canary in the coal mine as, as far as artificial intelligence is concerned for a whole other range of professions. Mm, yeah. Um, and it's also that, you know, streaming services like Netflix have held to the vest what their output and their, you know, what shows have become popular and the money they've made on those shows. And it's actually 
a ton of money. Fortunes is crazy. I mean, y'all need to just Google it. And because it's, it's crazy. And they and they have, some of these companies have lost more money in this strike than it would have meant to actually share that wealth with Mm. writers and actors literally they've lost more money than it would have been to just you know come to terms Mm. with equitable living you know uh, standard of living things it's 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 insane i mean you can just look it up and see the the disparity there most of us the majority of actors in this guild can't even make enough to secure health insurance for ourselves and that's a thing that i know you all don't deal with but we have to pay for our own health insurance here in America. And the one yeah. thing our guild, our union does is help us achieve by working health insurance. Yeah, it's a massive important thing. I mean, everything you're saying is really important. Like the whole, it's kind of unprecedented almost because I know there's been strikes in the past, but this one really does feel different, especially the writers and the actors sort of both being on strike and even like massive names, you know, I it's it's mental. And like I saw an interview of one of the writers from The Bear and I've totally forgotten his name, talking about how like, you know, being a writer used to be almost be a middle class profession, but now you barely made any money. And he's working on a massive show for, you know, Disney and FX, The Bear. You know, that made them a ton of money. It's a, it's a massive show. Yes, I saw that too. Yeah. And he barely could make ends meet. It's crazy. I mean, he, yeah, he had, I mean, I think at one point he had to go on welfare or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm. It's ridiculous that, yeah. that labor for these shows, the people who write them, the people who create them, that create the weekly content, the actors who act in them can't make a living wage. We're not talking about millions of dollars here. Those are movie stars. That's a different thing. We're talking about, I don't think people realize when you watch something on TV, the telly or or film or whatever, every person you see is an actor. The people in the background, you know, sitting there drinking their cocktails, they're actors. Everyone's an actor. They didn't just plop down in the middle of, you know, <laughs> a restaurant and just start filming two people. All the people mm. behind them are actors. And then you have the makeup people and the people who run the camera and hold the cables so the camera can move and dolly. And the security and ev- and everyone. And, and that's another thing that the, the streamers and the people, that, the producers, et cetera, that aren't agreeing the deal, like don't understand as well that even, you know, it's not just the actors being, and I support the strikes, but there's also, you know, it's a knock on effect. Like because the actors aren't working and nothing's being made, then it means crews aren't being paid either. And it means people aren't making money from doing what they love. And, and I think the yeah. thing is everybody understand the sacrifice. The crew and everyone who works on the crew they understand the sacrifice because there is a trickle down there's absolute trickle down and let me tell you what i mean a lot of people think actors are the lowest fruit on this tree but it's the crew a lot of the crew yeah i mean that's been a problem for decades you know yeah yeah yeah. i know from sort of speaking to people it's not um you know the working conditions in the uk and especially in production are not great and like i think we will have to work far too long but the american stuff is even more insane like having spoke to some directors and people that have worked in america like the hours are just it's mental yeah Yeah. there there have been crew members who you know have to they're like i have to sleep in my car on set because it's too late for me to go home i would fall asleep at the wheel and I'm like what this is insane yeah why are we doing this it doesn't make sense everyone who works should be able to have in our modern society in the 21st century Mm. no one no labor should have to work like this 
No, especially when it's making so much money for the people at the top. That, that That's what the crazy part is and what you, the, the whole thing behind it is. On a more positive note, and thank you very much for your sort of Absolutely. take on this as well. It's great to get your perspective from the States. Do you think there's a way out of this? What what do you do? You think that they'll find a resolution? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, one of the producers said that, you know, it was a necessary evil that we were just, they said this about the writers, Writers Guild, it's a necessary evil. And we're just holding out until writers are kicked out of their apartments and, you know, they can't pay their mortgages anymore on their homes so that they will come back and accept some, a deal. I mean, that's robber baron talk. You know what I mean? This is, that kind of talk is like from the industrial revolution. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's just like, like yeah and I also feel there'll be a lot of producers whose hearts are in the right place as well it's not everyone that this is like a you know it's a more of a it's a system it's a systemic problem as well and yeah hopefully there is a resolution the AI stuff is crazy and I'm sort of trying to educate myself more on AI it's a, such a weird thing I'm a script editor in the UK but like it scares me for my job in the future the whole right you know everyone it's so scary and I mean it, there's all 100%, there's all, yeah. it 100% should scare you 100% yeah. I mean, there's often hysteria around new media as well. So I'm trying to sort of, you know, because there'll be good things about it too, but it is a very weird time. And I think you're right that this is like the coal, you know, the canary in the coal mine. And we do stand on the edge of like a new frontier and things are going to change. And, you know, I think I quite like to do an AI episode on this podcast and maybe get an expert on to sort of ask them more about it because it's such an interesting topic, but a very scary one. Right. And I think all creatives should heed this clarion call of you, the creative Mm person will be done because fast food, you know, we will, we, we love fast food, right? Uh, Western society loves fast food and AI is like another level of fast food. It cuts out the creatives and just says, let the robot do the work. But the thing is as well, all the work that they have is all based on what we've made as well. So at the moment, anyway, I mean, it'll all change. I mean, it's it's such a a big topic. I Mm -hmm. mean, we can talk about this all evening because it's just so much, there's so much, but just (laughs) to quickly, I mean, I know we'd nearly been speaking for an hour, so I started to sort of wrap things up, but like I've got a few more questions just to, for you and your career and stuff but what just a nice question for you on a more positive note what's what's been your sort of highlight of your acting career so far well I have to say the the thing that I learned the most from and grew most as an actor is the one person show I did I don't think actors are have to be invited to the table usually right and we all have to work together and work around each other to create content when it's a multi-person space. Well, when I then did my first one-person show in 2016, I hadn't, I didn't have to deal with any other egos or it was just a complete trust between me and the stage manager and the director. And I learned so much research, mm. my research, because it was about Mary Jane Kelly. So the last known victim of Jack the Ripper. That's the show I did. Uh, And it was about her last night on earth. So the research and the due diligence I did where I just totally submersed myself in the project. I did nothing but that. I wasn't like a crazy Daniel Day-Lewis who, you know, needs to be called that person and walked around like that person all the Mm. time. But I really can't explain it. It just put me at another level Mm. of, I'm an artist, man. This is what it really feels like to be an artist, not just to give somebody what they want, what the director wants or what the audience wants or what my fellow actors want from me. My acting partner was the audience. And it was an incredible, relevatory experience where I could literally 
once I stepped through the curtain, it was like an out-of-body experience is all I can think. Mm. No, that's amazing to hear. Thank you for the answer. It's really interesting. Yeah. And sort of similarly, do you have a favorite like on-screen appearance that you've had the pleasure of doing in your career so far? Oh, I don't know if I have a favorite. I have a couple of experiences. So I just had one word on uh, <laughs> a movie called Being the Ricardos and it had Nicole Kidman in it. And, and I played Nicole Kidman's dresser. It's what I knew movie sets could be like. Aaron Sorkin wrote it and directed it. And it was such an inclusive experience. You never know what you're going, when you're what we call a day player, which means you might have a few lines or one word or whatever, you're in one scene. Usually it's like you're in, you're out, follow the rules. People ignore you. They, you know, just say, go there, move there. This was not that. I was included, even though I had one word to say in the scene. I was directed. I was included. What do you think here? And Miss Miss Kidman was like, okay, I think we're friends. And I think we've been friends for a long time. So (laughs) I was like, yes. So I did not feel like a hired gun or, you know, some little actor who came in to do a little thing. I it I was included fully in this process for the day and completely welcomed by everybody. That mm. was wonderful. Amazing yeah. again to be friends with Nicole Kidman. It sounds like well friends for <laughs> friends in quotation marks for six <laughs> hours, eight hours. Yeah. <laughs> but very gracious. Everyone uh, I can tell you everyone in that film was the, the most gracious yeah. human being. Yeah. No, it's great to hear. Just get a real job. Well, the name of this podcast is Just Get a Real Job. We'd all had to work jobs and support ourselves by paying the bills on the side. But what what's the worst quote real job or part-time job? Okay, we can talk 10 hours about this job. <laughs> so I had a job during school, uh, university break. So during the summer, and I worked on a riverboat, which was a thing in the South (laughs) in America. And it was like a dinner cruise riverboat. It was smelly, sticky, hot. I cocktailed. So I was dealing with a bunch of drunk customers. And when you're out on a boat, there's no law, like you're the law. And so we'd have it when people got drunk and unruly, you know, you just see the worst of humanity. We were the law. So one night somebody had got really drunk, some dude, and threw the anchor overboard. God. I mean, that could have been truly disastrous. I'm like, no one wants to drown in the muddy Missouri River on this riverboat with a bunch of drunk people. And we all had these, this thing we had to do where the cocktail waitresses would man the bar and make sure there wasn't any anarchy, you know, close the bar down. And then the bartenders <laughs> and the rest of the crew have to subdue literally the, the unruly passenger yeah, the cops came. It was a it was a whole thing. And it was just like, man, I do not get paid enough for this stuff. I do not. <laughs> you know, people grabbing at me, people yelling at me, you know, people who get drunk, just not my favorite thing. It's not my favorite thing. But I had to earn money for school, had to earn money yeah. for school. And that's what I did. And by the way, everyone was so bad at that job. I was only there for two and a half months. At the end of the summer, before I went back to school, they begged me to become the assistant manager. <laughs> And I was like, there's not enough money in the world. I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm going to go, go, go become Nicole Kidman's best friend. So I'm, I'm yeah, 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 yeah. You won't, you don't have to work those jobs anymore if you're Nicole Kidman's best friend. So. <laughs> oh, Gail, thank you so much for your time. I've just got two more questions for you and they kind of tie into each other. But like, 
what are three things you think that need you need to do if you want to be an actor or just work in the arts in general? Um, I think you have to have a plan. You know, we talked earlier about goals and everything like that. I think when you're starting out, especially have goals, have a plan, know where you're going, what you're doing, uh, because I didn't. And I often counsel actors on this all the time. It's like spend your last year, whether your program helps you with this or not, spend your last year of schooling or if you're getting into classes or whatever, making a plan. You know, where are you going? Who are your buyers in that market, right? Who are the people you feel like you need to connect to and make your database of contacts, find your tribe, find the people who, you know, you can help uh, with accountability and make you better, find Mm. the classes and um, do the work that will help you grow. Listening is a big thing. Be a good listener, but really listen to yourself your instincts and your intuition and be open to pivoting. Um, actors don't realize it's not just, I want to be an, I want to be a theater actor or I want to be a TV and film actor. I'm like, there's a lot of things out there that you can use using your skill set as an actor. You know, yeah. there's uh, here in the States, they have standardized patient work. So you, you act like a patient, you learn um, uh, these conditions that you come in with and doctors learn bedside manner through that and you give them feedback, that's like a great Mm. thing to do. And um, you work early in the morning and then the rest of your day is free if you need to audition or do rehearsals or whatever. So find those jobs that that, um, speak to your skill set. And then what else? Oh, this is a big one because I didn't have this. Don't wait for someone else to create the content you want to see. Don't wait to be invited to the table, especially as an actor. You have to explore more versions of being a creative artist, right? Even if it's bad, right? Or help your fellow uh, uh, creatives create something. Even if you're just being like a production assistant on a short film, don't wait. Don't sit by the phone. Strive to do other stuff other than being an an employee of someone else. Mm -hmm. No, they're all very very well thought out um and really insightful answer so thank you for your time um thinking about that and because I, I know that's one of the questions I sent you ahead of this so I appreciate your <laughs> preparedness there um just the, the closing question which again ties into everything you're just saying but what's your closing advice for anyone that just wants to be an actor or work in the industry I think it goes back to the beginning make sure you're enjoying the journey but it feels like that's because the if you the aren't part. yes if you aren't something has got to change yeah no 100 um, yeah it's a great it's a great place to leave it i think gail thank you so much for your time it's, it's really been a pleasure chatting to you and hearing a bit more about the states and getting a different perspective and you know good luck with it uh, hello kitty must die as well it's really exciting i hope people go and see it thank you so much jamie and listen uh thank you uh let me know when you do that ai conversation i want to listen to it for sure oh, definitely Well, there you go. That was episode 107 of Just Get A Real Job. Thank you again to Gail for her time. It was a pleasure to speak to her. I really enjoyed that conversation. Be sure to go and see Hello Kitty Must Die at the end of the Fringe. There's a link below the podcast. Another thing I wanted to say in this week's outros as well is if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to get in touch and let us know because often people just listen to podcasts and they don't really, we don't know if they're enjoying it or if they're just listening to it. So it's always great for us to get your feedback and hear from the listeners. So if you want to let us know what you think of the podcast or if there was any particular episode you've been enjoying, be sure to get in touch and let us know and be sure to share and rate and subscribe etc all those things that go along with it but thank you so much for listening once again 
I hope you all have a lovely week and if you're in Edinburgh as well I hope you have a lovely time going to support local artists and artists across the creative industries I'm just waffling on now but I hope you go and support everyone at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, and have a lovely week everyone thank you just get a real